0: The following is a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people. Broken hearted, they're discouraged, this man, this friend, Jesus, who they had just followed for the last three years, who they'd seen do incredible miracles and teach amazing things, he was dead. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the resurrected Christ shows up in their midst and, and they hang out and they talk. And, and it even mentions that, that Jesus eats a piece of broiled fish, which I always thought was kind of entertaining because I think he's a ghost. And he's like kind of like, no, I'm not a ghost. I eat fish. <laughs> Ghosts don't eat fish. I think that's funny. Uh, and so in, in verse 44, Jesus says to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And you would have unpacked the Old Testament and, and how everything that happened in his life was, was to fulfill uh, these prophecies. And, and just a little bit in the same chapter, there's these two disciples and they're on the road to Emmaus. And they're also like really broken hearted and discouraged. And Jesus does the same things. And, and at the end, uh, they exclaimed to another, weren't our hearts burning within us as he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And about a year ago, actually a couple of years ago now, I learned about the prophecies Jesus fulfilled for the first time. And I remember my heart burning within me as well, being really excited uh, about uh, this, this kind of theme that runs throughout Scripture. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to kind of unpack what did Jesus tell his disciples? How did he help them understand the Scriptures? Um... How can we see that that from the beginning of time, God's plan was for Jesus to redeem all mankind? Uh, You know, when it comes to other religions, in a way, it it didn't really matter who their uh, religious leader was. You know, what I mean by that is that it didn't matter where they were born, who they were born to, where they grew up, how they died, etc., etc. And this is because most religions are based around a philosophy, a thought process often instituted by their leader. So with Confucianism, you know, some guy named William could have come 100 years earlier uh, from anywhere in the world with the same philosophy that we know as Confucianism, and we would have called it maybe Williamism perhaps who knows or if confucius never developed the thoughts he developed that little kid growing into man someone a hundred years later from anywhere in the world could have come with the same ideas you know but christianity isn't based around an idea or morals certainly that is involved but at the end of the day instead of revolving around an idea christianity revolves around a person And for us Christians, that person was and is Jesus, and we believe that Jesus was God and that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Jewish scriptures. Now, this uh, Messiah in the Hebrew scriptures couldn't have just been anybody with a specific group of ideas like many other religions, and in fact, this Messiah couldn't have been just born anywhere. He couldn't have uh, been born from just anyone. He couldn't have just lived any regular life. He couldn't have died any particular death. Well, why is that? It's because hundreds and thousands of years before he, he came, there were very specific prophecies written about who the Messiah would be and what he would do. And I believe God put these prophecies in place to help make it very clear for us regarding who this Messiah would be. And today, yeah, we're going to look at that. And I just want to say one thing before I start. Uh, when it comes to believing in God and in Jesus, uh, faith is required. You know, in my own life, it's where I, when I've taken steps of faith that I've experienced more of God and His love, and so and so we can look at things from an intellectual part point of view, and we can see there's a lot of evidence for Christ and and for His story and for Him fulfilling prophecies and dying on the cross, and we see these scientifically and historically. Um, but there's also uh, we're, some faith required. We're not never, never just going to hundred percent prove it, you know. Um, With that being said, whatever worldview someone chooses still requires faith. There will never be enough evidence for any worldview that doesn't require faith. You know, if you want to be an atheist, I would say that it actually requires a large amount of faith. That this is all just some accident. You know, for as scientists study our universe, and as they weigh the facts, they're more and more commonly suggesting intelligent design. And if you want to believe in another religion, uh, it would require a lot of faith too, and and might even require you to ignore your logical reasoning. And so I guess out of all the worldviews, the easiest option is to choose nothing, or choose to believe in a higher power and, and not look farther than that. I feel like that's actually a really popular thing for my generation like well i believe in something i don't really know what it is but there's something up there and that's all i really care about and they don't really dig much deeper brett's brett's maybe experienced that with some friends yes all right um however like most things in life i don't think the easier option is the better option And if at the end of searching you come to the point that a God must exist, but he is a noble, then that is one thing. But I think we must do our part of searching. And so if if you're kind of on that searching journey, um, yeah, I just encourage you to to dig in and and go farther than past this, this higher power notion to actually think, well, is what Jesus claimed to be true? And so let's just pray before we begin diving into the Scriptures. God, whether we are here today as um, a Christian or as a non-Christian or or whatever background, um, God, I pray that through this teaching, our knowledge of you and your word would increase, God. But even more importantly than that, our faith in you would increase, God. And that as our faith increases, it would lead us to grow closer to you. God, would you open our hearts to your word this morning in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you guys ready to go for it? Are you ready? Darren, you can. All right. Darren's ready. He didn't have a neighbor. All right. How Jesus fulfilled prophecy through his birth. So the Jews were awaiting their Messiah. If you type Messiah into Google, the definition is the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation prophesied in the Hebrew Bible. Messiah means God's anointed one, God's chosen one. In biblical times, anointing someone with oil was a sign that God was consecrating or setting apart that person for a particular role. Thus, an anointed one was someone with a special God-ordained purpose. Uh, Fun fact, the Greek equivalent, you guys probably know this already, maybe, uh, of the word Messiah is Christos, which translated to English becomes Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we are literally saying Jesus, God's chosen one. And if you want to say Jesus Christ, uh, in in Hebrew, you would say, uh, as it was on the slide earlier, Yeshua HaMashiach. It's kind of got a nice ring to it. You guys want to try that with me? Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeah, so that means, uh, it's actually cool. Jesus' name means salvation, uh, and then, obviously, uh, Messiah is God's anointed one. So we're saying salvation from God's anointed one when we say Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. And that's about all the Hebrew I know, so uh, don't worry, we won't have any more. Uh, So number one prophecy, the Messiah was going to be Jewish. Number two, the Jews also would have known that the coming Messiah would be a descendant of David's. This is called the Davidic Covenant. And in Chronicles 17, 10 to 14, God makes this promise to David. I think it's going to be, um, yeah. Uh, I don't think that's the one. Yes. All right. Maybe it's part of it. Sweet. So it says, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over, this is God talking to David. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I, God, will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. So, um, we see that this Messiah uh, is going to be a descendant of David's. Uh, actually, in Matthew 1, uh, the very start of the Gospels, verses one to seventeen, Matthew spells out the genealogy of Jesus, and it goes through this guy was dad of this guy and born of this guy and this guy. And uh, you know, I when I first read Matthew or when I was thinking to myself, I was like, "Man, if you're going to like start like a book trying to convince someone that someone is like God, when not you like start with like a good hook? You know, like start with one of those like flashy miracles as as opposed to like some." boring list of like names and and genealogies um but as i started to understand uh, the importance of prophecy i realized it was so cool that matthew starts with this long list of names because we see that jesus indeed is born from david and matthew is is writing his book to the jews he's saying hey this guy he's from the lineage of david and, and so uh that's that's the second prophecy that jesus fulfills just with his birth um, number three in micah 5 2 it is prophesied that the messiah would come from bethlehem there it goes but you bethlehem Ephrathah, that took me a while to figure out how to say uh, though you are small among the clans of judah out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over israel whose origins are from of old from ancient times Wow, and of course we know that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, hence why we sing, O little town of Bethlehem at Christmas, etc., etc. Number four, uh, in Isaiah 7, verse 14, it is prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, Uh, which reminds me of that other Christmas song, you know, the virgin Mary had a baby boy. Uh, and, and number five, throughout all these prophecies, we see a weaving theme that somehow this Messiah is with God and is God. First Chronicles, we already read, His throne will be established forever. Forever sounds a lot like God. Uh, Micah 5, two says, Out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And that word old in the Hebrew was "quedem," and the Hebrew means from ancient times and is used to describe actually God the Father in Deuteronomy and Habakkuk. Further, the Hebrew word for the word ancient in that verse literally means from ancient time or eternity. One can also translate it as days of immeasurable time, which just doesn't sound like a human, you know? I'm not from ancient times. I'm not from, you know, it, yeah, you guys get the point. Sounds a lot like God, okay? We're, we're starting to see this scene that this, this Messiah is somehow going to be God, somehow. And then Isaiah uh, 7, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we will call him Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? Yeah, God with us. And, and and so we see that somehow this Messiah is going to be God. Now here's a little rabbit trail uh, because this is how my mind works. I, I kind of scatterbrained a little bit, just one thought leads to another. Um, has anyone wondered, show of hands, why Jesus isn't called Emmanuel? I mean, we just read in Isaiah 7 that uh, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And I was like, Looking at it, I was like, oh, man, did we totally mess up everything? We called Jesus the wrong name. Ah, oh, we didn't fulfill the prophecies. Shoots, it's all over. I was, I was curious. I was thinking. I was just wondering. Uh, well, if you flip two chapters forward, it's amazing how the Bible interprets itself. Uh, in Isaiah uh, 9, verse 6, uh, these are some of those famous words from Handel's Messiah. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, Isaiah uses that line again, Uh, but what does he say this time? He says, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And so I think Isaiah is getting at more of who Jesus would be than his actual birth name, you know. Unless he wanted to give Jesus, like, the longest name of all history. And can you imagine, like, poor little Jesus on the playground at recess with his friends? Uh, and some other little boy comes up to him on the playground and is like, Hey, what's your name? And Jesus has to say, uh, My name is Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. What's your name? And the little boy's like, uh, Jimmy. I'm going to go play with my other friends now, you know. (laughs) It would be be awkward. So I'm glad Jesus, uh, his parents called him Jesus, you know, salvation. It's amazing. Okay, so we see uh, the prophecies fulfilled through the birth of Jesus. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Um, Let me actually try and put this to you in present-day Alberta terms. Imagine that I was part of a religion that claimed that a Messiah was coming and he would be of Mennonite heritage, okay? Anyone fit that description here? Any Mennonites in the house? Uh, I want to see it loud and proud. We only got one? Darren's the only Mennonite? No other Mennonites. Man, I thought there'd be... Lots of Mennonites in this church. All right. Okay, so out of this prophecy, the only person who could potentially be the Messiah would be Darren. So we're going we're gonna to use Darren. Okay. Uh, so that's the first prophecy that this Messiah would be Mennonite. Now there's another prophecy, let's imagine, that he would be born in the small town of Irakana, Alberta. Has anyone been to Irakana? Yes? Okay, lots of people. All right, apparently the town mascot is a skunk. Great. Uh, population approximately 1,000, uh, which is very close to the estimated size of Bethlehem in Jesus' day. So uh, does anyone... Darren, are you from Irkana? Were you born in Irkana? Ah, oh, just north. You, you just missed the prophecy by, by a couple of kilometers. Oh, well, well that's, that's not far off. Let's just pretend you were born in Irkana. Okay, let's say Darren has two, two of the prophecies out of five. Wow, you're just really crushing it, Darren. This is great. I'm glad you're here. Okay, so we have one option still. Uh, Now, it's also prophesied that you would be a descendant of the famous Menno Simmons, the the founder of the Mennonites. Are you a a relative? Okay, he's not a relative. Shoots, Darren's not the Messiah. Uh, So, okay, we're missing. Just let's let's pretend, Darren, that, that you were that it could be possible. Um, there's another, there's a fourth prophecy that you were born of a virgin. Um, is that true? No, it's not true. I mean, it's hard to know, but I'd imagine you're not, you'd have to ask your parents. Um, it could be awkward. So don't even, but I don't think I've, you know, there's no one in in the history of the world. We're all born from parents conceived. Uh, and then let's just, do you have a wife here? Is she in the room? she's in the nursery okay well i'll ask the congregation uh it's also prophesied that somehow uh this messiah would be god now could darren possibly be god no it's quite confident darren they've seen you mess up once or twice they see that you don't have uh unending power unfortunate okay so darren can't be the messiah uh and and you actually did good. You got, I'm going to give you one and a half out of five prophecies, um, which isn't that bad. I mean, I've, I've, seen, uh, I've seen worse, you know, in this illustration. So uh, basically, I did that to illustrate how specific these prophecies are. You know, what are the odds that they would happen by coincidence or even that someone could fabricate them? And so far, we've just looked at five. But that is just the start. It is said by many that Jesus fulfilled 353 prophecies. Man, this is going to be a long sermon. Do you guys pack a lunch? I hope so. I'm just kidding. We don't have time for all of them. Uh, So we're going to look at the prophecies um, Jesus fulfilled through the hours before his death and through his crucifixion. And and keep in mind, it's actually going to get quite gruesome. Um, And as we talk about the horrible pain Jesus suffered, uh, that he went through this because he loved us. You know, if he was God, he could have performed a miracle at any time and come off the cross and ended his suffering. But as one author writes, the greater miracle is that he stayed on the cross. So if you could turn with me to Matthew 27, and we'll start in verse 13. just read it from the screen here says then Pilate asked him don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you but jesus made no reply not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor And, and this would have fulfilled isaiah 53 verse 7 i think it's going to be on the screen so you don't have to flip there it says he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Uh, Continuing on in Matthew 27, uh, verse 26 to 31, it says, Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led away Him away to crucify Him. And, and this fulfills Isaiah 50, verse 6, which says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. It also fulfilled Isaiah 52, verse 14, which says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. And a little history here, they would have flogged Jesus with a leather whip. And at the end of the whip would have been many lead balls embedded with bits of sharp rock or bone. And the whip would would pierce the skin and on its way out would rip out pieces of flesh. And over and over, Jesus would have been whipped until near the point of death. And it was incredibly horrific. You know, that plus the repeating striking of his head with the staff while, he, while wearing a crown of thorns, as well as the, the intensity of the cross would have left him, as Isaiah said, marred beyond human likeness. Um, another key part of scripture concerning this crucifixion can be found in Psalm 22, written by David. Unfortunately, because of time's sake, it's hard to set up the best context for you. But, but quickly, this is a psalm written by David that is messianic prophecy. And one of the main reasons we can be certain uh, it's, it's messianic prophecy, that it's not just about David's life, is that David goes into uh, a lot of detail about crucifixion and, and something that never came close to happening in his life and, and hadn't been invented yet and wouldn't be invented for hundreds of years still. And so we're going to be in Psalm 22. It's going to be on the screen once again. So let's start uh, looking at this passage in verse 14. And it says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. And actually how they would have nailed people to the cross uh, back then would, would have been through right around there. And they would have just put one uh, spike through through both their feet. And their, their legs would have been actually like, crossed a little bit, so they're not... Like standing on their feet their their knees are a little bit bent, and so what that would do is it means all your weight is essentially hanging off your arms and uh, I'm not sure if you've ever tried to just hold yourself up like this, but it's really impossible, and especially to do it for hours and hours you know after th- after three minutes, um, you just don't have any more strength to hold yourself up and so what would happen is that they're nailed there their their arms would actually get dislocated their their shoulders would get dislocated from their sockets and then their, and then their, uh, elbows. Uh, and so they're just kind of like hanging there, uh, very limp. And so when, when David says, and all my bones are out of joint, it's a very true thing. It's wild. Uh, verse 15 it says my mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth you lay me in the dust of death and, and this whole process between the blood loss and the heat and the effort put into breathing and, and sheer amount of time would have left jesus extremely dehydrated uh, when when you're on the cross um and you're hanging there actually when when all that weight is is on you're not you're not able to support yourself um it puts a ton of weight on your chest and it actually makes it very difficult to breathe. And actually most criminals would die from suffocation, not actually from from blood loss or or anything, just from not being able to take a breath. And so to take a breath, they would have had to push up on on their feet with nails in it and, you know, scrape their their bloodied back across the back of the cross just to kind of like gasp for a couple breaths of air. And so it would have just been an exhausting process that would have happened repeatedly time after time. Um, Verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. And we know from scripture that David never had his hands and his feet pierced. And and this is actually quite an incredible statement. Uh, As David would have written this, yeah, uh, around a thousand years before the crucifixion. And that wasn't even invented till three or 400 B.C. And so this would be like the equivalent of someone a thousand years ago uh, having this vision from God, uh, seeing someone like die strapped to a metal chair shaking uncontrollably, you know. And this person seeing the vision, they would have no idea what electricity is or what an electric chair is. Yet they would have prophesied the death happening on an electric chair and so this is what david is seeing he's seeing this thing that doesn't even exist yet and, he, and he's prophesying that that's what's going to happen verse 17 says all my bones are on display people stare and gloat over me and, and jesus would have been most likely crucified in just a loincloth or naked and there's so much physical pain but the romans are also wanting to inflict as much shame on a person as possible Verse 18, it says, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And in John 19, uh, verse 23 and 24, we get a detailed account of how this prophecy was fulfilled. It says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them while the undergarment remaining, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they're kind of going to gamble for it. Uh, but but they say, let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And so instead of breaking it up, uh, yeah, they they kind of cast lots for it. And so uh, Jesus' garments aren't broken. Just a couple of verses later in, in John 19, 31 to 34, Says this now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And, and yeah, what we just talked about—you know how how the criminals had to to push themselves up on the, up on their feet just to take a breath. Well, some some criminals could actually live for a day or two doing this on the cross. And uh, there was a special Sabbath happening the next day. The Jews wanted to, to take the criminals down and, and bury them before the Sabbath, before they couldn't do any work. And so to speed up the process, um, the soldiers would often just break their legs because now that their legs are broken, they can't push up and they would just suffocate pretty quickly. And so that, that's what they do with these first two criminals. But then when they come to Jesus, he's already dead. So instead of, of breaking his legs, they, they shove a spear into his side. And this is actually quite significant. Um, You know, for the Jews up until that point, they had to sacrifice animals for their sin. We know that on the cross, Jesus is making the perfect sacrifice once and for all. The sin offering, we read in Numbers 6, had to be a male lamb without blemish, without defect. Incredible. Jesus is that perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb. We also read in Numbers 9 that none of the Passover lamb's bones were to be broken as it was sacrificed. Really interesting. The spear fulfills a prophecy written in Zechariah 12.10, actually, too. And so this this one seemingly small thing actually fulfills all this prophecy. Zechariah says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Now now, the most important part through all of this is not how Christ suffered, but what he accomplishes through his suffering. Isaiah prophesies in in chapter fifty three that the Messiah would be crushed for our sins, would take the punishment we deserved, and through his wounds we would be healed and freed from our sin and so actually let's let's read that as a church. This is just beautiful scriptures Let's start in isaiah fifty three verse i think four yeah. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know what an amazing truth this is that the God of the universe would suffer and die for us, also that we could be with him. Hopefully by now you're realizing these fulfillments of prophecies were no coincidence. You know, even if someone wanted to fulfill them intentionally, to falsely claim they were the Messiah, would have been virtually impossible. There's so many things out of a person's control. I mean, for starters, you can't decide to be born a Jew or a descendant of David, let alone born of a virgin or or in Bethlehem. You don't have control of how Roman soldiers would divide your clothing, and you'd have to find some way of convincing a society of crucifying you without committing any crimes or sin. Surely this was no accident. And and for me, learning this personally has been really cool. Uh, I've grown up in the church most of my life, and as a kid uh, growing up, I always thought that the Old Testament and the New Testament were kind of... Maybe opposed to each other or, or didn't really flow well, or I was like, how, do, how does it all make sense? Um, but I've, l- I've learned as I've started to understand um, yeah, the fulfillment of prophecy and, and that Jesus is kind of the center of all things in the Bible that, that the New Testament so heavily depends on the Old Testament to make sense, and, and vice versa. You know, together they're complete. This book is actually one complete big story. It's been God's plan all along to use Jesus to redeem us back to Him. Yeah, even even in Genesis, Genesis chapter three, there's a prophecy about the Messiah and what He would do, and, it, and we see that it was God's glorious plan all along, which is really encouraging. Um, and I love Isaiah 49 verse six, where God prophesies what His servant would accomplish. He says, "It is too small a thing." For you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. God says this rescue plan I have is way too big of a deal to just save Israel. No, this will be for the Gentiles as well. This is for the Africans, the Arabians, the Asians, the Europeans, for all of mankind. And indeed, just as God promised, Jesus came for everyone, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Uh, Another major thing that I've learned from all this is that God is faithful to his word. Amen? Like, Like all those things, he's so faithful to fulfill every small detail. His word never fails. What he says is going to happen will happen. You know, God has been faithful to the promises he made about the Messiah surely he will be faithful to the promises he has made to you maybe some of you guys need to hear that this morning god has been faithful to the promises he's made about the messiah surely he will be faithful to the promises he's made to you Hear these promises that he makes to us specifically he says if we believe in him we shall not perish but have eternal life He says his mercies are new for us every morning. He says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says we do not have to fear evil for God is with us. He said we are God's masterpieces. We have intrinsic value and we are created through Christ to do good works. He says that in all things, whether trouble or hardship or famine or sword, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says that we can pray for the sick and lay hands on the sick and we will be healed. He says that even greater things than he did, we will be able to do through Christ living in us. I mean, sometimes we hear promises of God and we say, well, that seems a little far-fetched. How could God do miracles through us? How could God do even greater things? I've been really challenged lately um, to to elevate God's word over my experience. You know, sometimes we pray for someone and we and we don't see something happen, uh, and and because of that, we're like, oh. Oftentimes, we make up a, a, a theology that says, "Well, it doesn't." You know, there's all these different reasons. Um, but, but actually, God says, you know, we will pray for the sick and we'll see them healed. We'll do greater things than than he. And so we actually, if we start putting God's word, even though we're not seeing it yet, if we start claiming, actually, no, that's like what God has promised me as opposed to just this experience that I'm seeing. God says that, that we are righteous in his sight and that he's making us whole. And, you know, if if i If I see that in God's Word and then i 'm living a life and I stumble and fall in sin, you know i can I can have my experience inform me and and I can make up some belief that you know what i'm always going to be trapped in sin i'm never going to be able to have victory over this sin, over this problem but but god's actually word says i'm righteous, and so even if my experience isn't showing that, I, I can actually believe what He says in his word over my experience, and I think as as we look at god's faithfulness in the scriptures and as we believe uh even just the things he said about the messiah we can start saying whoa god you promised that that you would live in me and and do incredible things and i'm not seeing that right now but i don't have to just make up some theology that you're not alive and active anymore i can actually just keep on believing that you know and so i i hope that this um encourages you today in in some case that that one god is faithful to his promises and he's been faithful throughout the ages and also he's faithful to the promises he's made to you he says he's with you he says you do not have to fear and so if you're living in a life of fear i mean i understand that oftentimes my experience is "Well, this is scary but god says hey i'm with you you don't have to fear and so let's just elevate his word um, above our experiences hopefully that encourages you this morning hopefully as you look back over your life you can see that god has been faithful in so many ways to you even just personally um maybe it's even with promises that he's made about the purpose of this church as a congregation you know you guys are going to be a light and rem for you and maybe sometimes that's hard to like believe you're like well are we making an impact in this in this community and, and maybe god has spoken to some of you guys specifically that no like we're here for a reason because god wants to use us and and maybe some days you you don't feel like that's happening but if if god has said it and god has called you to this place then then you can believe it yeah uh i'm just going to lead one last song of worship just about god's faithfulness so why don't we stand and uh, thank you very much for having me here this morning This has been a presentation of Renfrew Baptist Church, a community of faith that exists to create obedient followers of Jesus Christ who love God and love people.